Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey, Laura. Murder. If our listeners want to support our podcast, what can they do? You can go to our website at clovercrestmedia.com where we have merchandise, a donate button, and all of the books we talk about. We also can be found at buymeacoffee.com and we would love any input or suggestions from our listeners. And we can be reached by email at ivyleaguemurders at gmail.com. And very importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star review. We really appreciate all the support we've gotten so far. Okay, so this week on Ivy League Murders, we have Penn State's Betsy Ardsma, a murder in the stacks. On the day after Thanksgiving in 1969, 22-year-old Betsy Ardsma went to Penn State's Petit Library to study and research. The stacks at Petit were dark and labyrinthine. The library's gloominess was especially pronounced that November day. Someone stabbed Betsy, striking her heart and killing her almost instantly. Her murder was sudden and shocking, but was it random? Why would someone kill this innocent college student? In his book, Murder in the Stacks, David DeCook lays out a compelling case. We will introduce David in a moment. And as always on Ivy League Murders, we focus on the institution, which in this case is Penn State. It's considered a public ivy, quote unquote, and it's enormous. Across its 24 campuses, it has over 98,000 students. Penn State boasts the largest alumni association in the world, and among its alumni are the CEO of Nike, Mark Parker, Bruce Banner, who was the Hulk in the 70s show, and my personal favorite, Ben and Jerry's. So thank you, Penn State, for Chunky (laughs) Monkey. David DeCook, thank you so much for joining us on Ivy League Murders. You're welcome have to tell you that the level of investigation and detail in your book, Murder in the Stacks, is fantastic. And if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background as a journalist and a writer and what your journey has been so far. Sure. I uh, I grew up in Holland, Michigan, which is the, the same city where Betsy Ardsma was from. And I graduated from Hope College with a degree in political science and came east Pennsylvania, where I worked for the next 12 years at the Shemokin News Item, Shemokin, Pennsylvania. And this is a general assignment reporter, became uh, very interested in the Centralia mine fire story and ended up writing two books about that. And then um, in 1987, I took a job with the Harrisburg Patriot News in the state capitol. And it was there that I, I first learned about the continuing interest at, among Penn State students and alumni, you know, with the Betsy Yardsma story. Patriot News hired a lot of Penn State graduates, and they were just fascinated with this, you know, that there's so many rumors and legends almost about her murder. And, you know, I didn't do anything with it right away. I mean, I very much remembered the story from when 
the newspaper landed on our driveway on November 29th of 1969 with the headlines about her being murdered uh, at Penn State. But I hadn't really thought much about it in the meantime, but I kind of got back into it. And Betsy Ardsma is still officially considered unsolved. Is that correct? It is officially considered unsolved, although in 2010, the cold case officer assigned to the case, Trooper Lee Barrows, told several people, including the Arizma family, that she believed that Rick Hafner had been the killer. Oh, I see. Okay. So obviously, Richard Hafner is a big subject in your book. But let's back up for a moment and take us through that November day in Petit Library. Set the scene for us, if you don't mind. Well, Petit Library was, in many ways, was a typical university library, big, confusing, but it was also scary because there was crime inside. You know, a lot of it was sexual crime, flashers, you know, that sort of thing. And it was a continuing problem that was driving the library management just nuts. And the campus patrol, which was the Penn State security force, really wouldn't do much about it. If you called them up, they'd send somebody there. Well, by the time the patrolman got there, Whoever the flasher was or was long gone. And the library finally ended up hiring their own couple of security guards who came on too late in the evening to have helped Betsy. But in any case, the library was, it was confusing on the inside. It had the stacks, which is where the books are kept. It was uh, two floors below the main floor and five floors above. And the murder occurred at the very bottom, that second level of the stacks, it was confusing, and it still is confusing inside. It was a problem that was caused by, they built the first building in 1937, and then they added on again, I believe it was in 1952, and they never really rationalized the combination. So even today, it's very easy to get lost inside there. It's dark, it's gloomy, you know, it's claustrophobic. And Betsy had not gone home for Thanksgiving break although many Penn State students had. There were still a fair number of students on campus then. A lot of them were the foreign students who really couldn't go home, but also graduate students who just could not take time away from their work to go and see their families. So she and her roommate, uh, Sharon Brandt, had set out for the library at about, I think it was uh, about a little after four on that day, on November 28th. They got to the library at about 4.10. That's where they split up. Uh, Sharon went inside. Bessie went to talk to a couple of her English professors and then went back into the stacks to look for a book about Richard Arbuthnot, Dr. Arbuthnot, who was uh, a friend of the English poet uh, Alexander Pope from the 18th century. She had used that in a paper, and her professor just wanted to see something, to check something in it. And so she went to go and, and look for that. And she was seen in the library after she entered. Somebody from her English 501 class saw her at the card catalog that still had card catalogs then. And then somebody else saw her down in the stacks, wandering around looking for a book. Maybe about 10 of 5 that she encountered Richard Hafner. Hafner was probably sitting there reading pornography because the pornography was found after the murder. She kind of like chanced upon him. There were three people really within like 40 feet, but because of all the book stacks, it was like being alone. That was the thing about being down there. It was hard to know whether anybody else was nearby because everybody's quiet in a library. So sneaking up on somebody would be feasible under those circumstances. It would be. Although in this case, my belief is I had to do some speculation here, fill in the blanks between the things that were definitely known, was that she saw Hafner. 
probably didn't say a word, but saw that he was reading pornography. She saw that he was reading pornography. He had briefly tried to date her and they had actually gone out two or three times, maybe very casually, because she had a study boyfriend at the Penn State Medical School 100 miles away in Hershey, Pennsylvania. But she had always, throughout her her young life, had been willing to at least have casual friendships with other men as a way to expand her horizons. And she and Hafner both lived in the same dormitory, Atherton Hall. That's how they met. But she had eventually decided that he was a creep. She had told her family that and had just broken it off. And she had just come back from spending Thanksgiving with her boyfriend and... And that's David Wright. David yeah. Wright, yes. Yeah. And and she had to do this work to finish this paper. And again, my belief is that Hafner saw that she saw that he had the pornography. And these were expensive Dutch pornography books. The Netherlands had just legalized pornography that very year, I think. And so they had this kind of export business. And these were expensive for the time, like maybe 10 or 12 bucks each, which in 1969 was a lot. Nobody heard anything, but he obviously, he followed her down the row of books, confronted her. Because she knew him, I believe that he would have been able to approach her without immediately triggering a flight reflex. So then he confronted her. He pulled out the knife. I believe he must have put his hand over her mouth, stabbed her right in the chest. She tried to climb backwards up the bookshelves, even though he was significantly taller than her by five or six inches or so. He was able to to stab her straight on and right through the breastbone into her heart. It's no easy feat to stab through the breastbone. You really have to want to do that. It was one blow. She then collapsed. Some of the books fell off the shelf, and that's what people heard. Two of the people, Joao Wafinda and Merrily Erdely, I believe it was Wafinda in particular, said that they heard a sound like a fist hitting a chest, you know, like that. But that was it, other than the books falling. And then the next thing that Erdely and Wafinda knew, this man was racing past them. He looked up at them and he said, somebody better help that girl, but it wasn't going to be him. And he just continued on and ran out of the library. That was one question that I had was, I realize this is a dark library, but was there ever any kind of a, other than the general description of this person, was there any attempts to make an identification of this person? Or I know that Joinda, he, I'm I'm mispronouncing his name, but he followed him out of the library as well. He tried to follow him. Yeah. Then he lost him. The state police, Sergeant Keebler and, and his men, They tried as hard as they could to get a good description of him. Keebler was never completely satisfied with the description they got or the composite sketches. I mean, they did get something. And they even hypnotized Wafinda and Erdley to try to get more details out of them. It happened so quickly that they never really got much. And they also faced the problem during the investigation was, I mean, they were not viewed with favor by many students on the campus. This is the same problem the University of Michigan had had with the co-ed killer investigation, when students were not willing to come forward with tips. And this was very much true at Penn State. And so they just had to struggle to get everything that they could get. And part of the problem, I think, too, was that Betsy was wearing a red dress. Right. People didn't realize initially how injured she was. Well, also, right? they she passed out, right? Early found her laying on the floor, kind of on her side between the book rows. The main thing, it wasn't even so much the red dress, although that helped, but the fact that it was a very narrow entrance wound. It didn't leave a very wide avenue for blood to leak out. Some blood did leak out, but the dress covered it. 
They took her to the autopsy and they undressed her and everything. Then they saw more blood on her white turtleneck sweater that was under the red dress. It wasn't like you would think, like you might think from various movies. I mean, there was not a pool of blood. There was a pool of urine, but not a pool of blood. So, and then the crime scene immediately gets compromised. Oh, it was horrible. It was just I mean, it's just, you talk about it in the book and it's just, it's horrible. And so any, can you talk about what happened? And, and, and but, but I think that relates also to the idea that people thought she had just passed out from something, right? They didn't, they didn't even of kind of realize it was a murder. Is that correct? It was, it was an epileptic seizure, a regular problem apparently with, because the, the stacks were overheated, that female students would faint. The basic problem was, was that for the first 90 minutes before the state police trooper Simmers got there, the campus patrol was in charge of the scene. This was basically an untrained security force. I mean, these guys were, they directed traffic at football games and, and that sort of thing. They were not sworn police officers, as the phrase goes. They could not make arrests. They could detain, but they couldn't file charges. They were in charge. These were basically young kids, not much older than students themselves. In fact, some of them, I think, were students. And people were allowed to wander in and out of the crime scene, to touch things. And it was just horrible. You know, when Simmers got there and then Corporal Brody after him, they put a stop to that. But by then, the damage was done. Okay, can I just ask you a hypothetical mm-hmm. question? If this was a case that was not solved for decades, basically, it went unsolved for a long time. Do you think if the crime scene had been able to be preserved, that it would have been solved more quickly? I think it's possible. I mean, it certainly couldn't have hurt. You know, they didn't have DNA technology then. Whether touch DNA would have remained on maybe some of the bookshelves or books, you know, or, or clothing, it's possible it could still be tested today. But As far as fingerprints, they found a soda can that they thought maybe the killer had drunk from. It turned out it was one of the campus patrol officers who had just left it there. Even when they, like with the the pornography books, when Sergeant Keebler had them tested years later, you know, in his whole thing with thinking maybe Ted Bundy was responsible, they found no fingerprints on them at all, which just perplexed them. Anything you might think happens in a crime scene investigation from watching TV today didn't happen back then. It just tried to look at this and, and think about the times, but it's still shocking to me. And it just surprises me how, how dangerous these stacks were, how, how many crimes were happening, the amount of sexual crimes that were happening, pornography, acts all the time, and they didn't yeah, do anything yeah. about it. And mm-hmm. they still had these kind of amateurs in there handling it. I, it's, I, pretty, it's pretty shocking. I thought the same thing. I thought, why not check people's IDs and at least vet people who were coming into that library? Well, that was another thing. They, they didn't lock the doors of the library. So people were allowed to come and go, not into the stacks, but into the library itself, basically until the library closed, which I think was at midnight. Any number of potential witnesses could have gone out the door and never right. been identified. That was a huge loss. But speaking of witnesses, they cast a very, they they look first, of course, to Betsy's boyfriend, right? David Wright. Right. Yes. But he gets alibied fairly quickly. Lieutenant Kimmel, who was initially in charge of the investigation before uh, Sergeant Keebler got back from his hunting camp, he called up the state police barracks in Harrisburg and had them send two detectives uh, to the, uh, the Penn state medical college in Hershey, which is about 15 miles from Harrisburg. And, um, to wake up David Wright, you know, he lived in a, uh, in a brick brick building on the campus of the Milton Hershey School. That's what they were using for housing 
for uh, medical students in those early days of the school and uh, woke him up and, and just grilled him. He grilled his, his, uh, his roommates, you know, and um, David Wright told me that it wasn't until he'd been, they'd been talking to him for about 20 minutes that they told him why he was, you know, being uh, questioned like that. And then he, he found out that his girlfriend was dead. Yeah. Awful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, but, and then they cast a fairly wide net, did they not? I mean, they talked to everybody, a lot of different students at Penn State, including, yeah. the, you know, focusing or tell us a little bit about their investigation at Penn State. And well, they, they, um, I mean, they interviewed many people, many faculty, many students. Uh, and, but the ones that they probably focused on the most were the other students in the English 501 class. And uh, and other people who lived in Atherton Hall, you know, where both Hafner and and uh, and Betsy Yardsma lived, uh, and so the, I mean they um, they actually came to the English 501 class, uh, you know, one night, and and they they took students individually, you know, out of the the class to be you know to be interviewed by a, a detective, uh, you know, they they in other cases they like with Larry Paul Maurer, they went to his dorm room at Atherton and, uh, and interviewed them there. Uh, I mean, they talked to anybody that might have any idea, you know, what went on because it was so frustrating, you know, to them that nobody was coming forward. And David, can you tell us a little bit about Mara? Cause he's pretty, pretty interesting character. In this. Oh, yeah. yeah, he is. Um, two, uh, two troopers went to Maurer's room at Atherton. And I should mention that Maurer and Hafner had been roommates like for one day at the beginning of the term oh, and they knew each other. And so anyway, the two troopers go there to, to talk to Larry Maurer because he was in the English 501 class. Uh, and they noticed that he'd carved on a, a wooden chair. Here sits death in the guise of man, which of course got their attention Right. And, uh, and they asked him about that. And then he said, oh, yeah, I thought it was a neat saying. And uh, and they asked him, you know, do you have a knife? He said, oh, yeah, I carry a knife. Uh, I use it to cut cheese. And, <laughs> and he said, and he admitted freely that he had been, you know, in the stacks uh, at the same time Betsy Arzma was. Um, they were just thrilled that the, the the troopers were just thrilled. They they you know ran back to the the Bookie Building where where the investigation was headquartered, you know told Keebler about this, but it but it all came to nothing. They put him on a polygraph and he passed with flying colors. Uh, and I came to believe during the, the course of my you know research on this was that he was just an attention seeker, and that's right. what Keebler ended up thinking too. Um, if you ever saw the movie The Boston Strangler, there's a character in there, an actor who pretends that he maybe was the killer. And, and ironically, that movie was playing in State College during the month of December of 19. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. That is fascinating. And that's, yeah. I think that's common in, in big, big cases. Yeah, the, the attention seat, you get the yes. attention seekers who are, mm -hmm. you know, kind of, they, they, they get off on it yes. for whatever reason. That's fascinating. And was, was, was Hafner on their radar at this point? He was not uh, at all. He was interviewed by one of the troopers, mm -hmm. uh, but he just seemed like another student. You know, 
Hafner was very good at hiding what he was. He really mm -hmm. did everything to not be on their radar. Exactly. In school, he... Yep, yep. Yeah, that's right. But tell us now, let's talk a little bit about Hafner because he spent a lot, you know, quite a lot of time in the book on Hafner and he's your, mm -hmm. he's your main, you know, he, yeah. he's kind of the main meat of what we think of as a suspect in this case. So mm -hmm. tell us, tell us a little bit about Hafner. He is, I, I know that he, I actually kind of vaguely remember Hafner Brewery um hearing about it yeah um i don't and, oh you don't no. okay yeah no i i feel like i'm maybe conflating it with another with another beer company but he came from sort of a brewery family yes yeah Boston and he family in lancaster, yep. uh, lancaster pennsylvania and um and he uh by the time that he came, uh, that Rick came along, the family had pretty much gone to seed i mean they were still a respected family but they're their wealth and influence had long since been dissipated. Uh, and, but um, he was, uh, I mean, he's strange in, in many ways. You know, his parents were nominally Catholic, but they didn't have him baptized uh, in <laughs> Catholic school. Uh, and they, um, he went to public schools, which, you know, hey, I went to public schools, no big deal. But uh, in high school, he was perceived by other students as, as gay. And, uh, and started carrying a, a knife, a shiv, really, uh, that he had mm -hmm. made. And, uh, and his cousin Chris had told me, he told me about this. And, but anyway, um, he was a pedophile, uh, absolutely no doubt. Uh, his, first, uh, his first known incident was when, he, I believe he was a sophomore at Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster. He had gone there to study geology, and, uh, and he had solicited an elementary school age boy uh, in Lancaster. Nothing was done, and um, and then about uh, about three years later, it's 1965. He's an assistant scoutmaster uh, in the the Boy Scout troop at the Catholic Church down the street from uh, his parents' house. I mean, we're getting into classic territory here, and, and right. uh, uh, but um, he molested boys in the scout troop. I interviewed one of them, you know, who, who talked to me freely, you know, uh, about it. And another one who, who knew of these stories that, that I talked to. And, uh, and eventually, um, I don't know if it was the, the parents of the, the parent of the, the kid I talked to, but uh, somebody complained to the church, you know, and then, you know, he was removed as an assistant scoutmaster. Nothing was done beyond that. And, uh, and then later in the summer of 65, he spent the summer of 65 working as a, uh, you know, as an outdoor counselor for the Lancaster Recreation Commission, you know, you know, organizing probably kickball games and playgrounds and, and that sort of thing. Meets two boys, uh, two brothers, age 10 and 11. And they're children of a single mom, and he befriends them, befriends the mom, he takes the boys to Ocean City, Maryland for a week uh, and to groom them, you know, to give them a nice thing and everything. And he molests them. And they tell their, their mom when they get home, the mom is furious. She confronts Hafner screaming at him. She goes to the, the chairman of the Recreation Commission and, you know, confronts him. He's very upset. 
uh, and and tries to get to the bottom of this, you know, and he talks to Hafner's family doctor who thinks that Rick ought to be reported to the police and to a psychiatrist uh, who says, no, no, don't <laughs> report him. It will ruin his life. You when know, actually, I, yeah. when this came up, Sarah and I called each other because we found this so shocking uh, when we read well, this. Because, I mean, we were, you know, thinking the way that pedophilia was treated at this time period, and you write extensively about this, yes. is so shocking. It is one in waves, the attitude of America toward pedophilia. And it's gone back and forth from, hey, it's a terrible crime to, eh, it's not so much. You know, you know, it's an embarrassment. You know, it doesn't do any harm to the kid. You know, right. uh, and this happened, the stuff in the in 65 and before happened during one of those periods where it was, you know, just considered to be an embarrassment. Right. Um, they were more concerned they, about his reputation yeah. yeah. than the kids. It's yeah. in, you know, we don't want to screw up Hafner, so we'll keep this quiet. And I mean, I was reading that and Sarah was, we were both just completely shocked. Outrageous. Yeah. Outraged. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. He spoke, he's. You know, allowed to go on to grad school at, at Penn State, you know, grad school in geology, but was told, you know, uh, by the, the local psychiatrist that he had to get, continues to get psychiatric counseling at Penn State. Never did. Uh, right. and it was just, just a horrible situation. And to your knowledge, did Betsy know about any of this? No one knew at Penn State, right? No, uh, as far as I know, nobody yeah. knew. He was, like I said, he was very good at concealing, you know, what he was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she thought he was a creep, you know, but that's a, a fairly broad term, you know. And she told her family that, and that, and that was that was why she had stopped any social interaction with him. Right, right. Do you think that he had a rage towards women, and that her seeing he did, him? He did have a rage towards women, and it, it came out you know, several points in his life that I was able to, to document, you know, right. both interviews and, and, and otherwise, uh, you know, a woman who, who challenged him in, in some way, you know, or didn't do what he wanted. He could just fly into a terrible, scary rage. Even strangers. I mean, later Even on. We see that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, it could be waitresses in restaurants. It could be, you know, a woman, at a liquor store in Delaware who uh, was concerned about his dog, you know, and mm. so, and he was violent. He was a very violent man. Do you think he was responsible for other murders? That's one thing I was wondering. You know, I never heard any, any, even any good rumors uh, to that effect. I mean, no. there was supposedly another woman in, uh, in Las Vegas uh, that he, assaulted like he did uh you know Catherine Schuyler you know in, in Delaware but uh, I was never able to to track anything down on that gotcha so do you think that killing Betsy was more of shame he was caught in the act of reading this pornography <laughs> and he flashed out at that time uh he would have had reason to worry that he might be kicked out of you know the graduate school program you know for a moral offense you know and so Yes. Can you talk about, I mean, people, our listeners today wouldn't even understand what that means, <laughs> that that would be something, you know, that a moral offense would exist at that period of time. 
But it certainly did, you know, then, uh, you know, just as faculty members would have worried about being outed as gay, you know. Uh, and there were curfews, which shocked me when I was reading. And I mean, I know you went oh, to Hope College, yeah. too. Yeah. I was shocked at the rules at Hope College. Oh, yeah, that was, uh, I guess I'm older than you, but. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I went to University of Miami, so it's a little. There were no rules. There were no rules. No. No, but and even at the time, time, yeah, not every college was like that, but Hope College certainly was. Right. You know, so there were morals. So, right. So he could have had she reported him for reading gay pornography, which today is no big deal. But at that time, would that would have been a big deal. Moral offense. And, yeah. and they might have just said, hit the road. You know, you know, we don't want you in the program anymore. You're you're not a good person. Yeah. Right. So that fear of, of being caught, of being oh, outed yeah. would have triggered that. Would have, been, would have been real. Yeah. Would have been real. Real threat. That's hard to imagine today, but in that time period was quite real. Do mm -hmm. you feel that it was just sort of a coincidental meeting or do you feel like he was stalking her or what? You what? Know, I, I couldn't write about this really in the book because I just didn't have enough, but I've always wondered because of the way Marilee Erdley reacted, the hysterical reaction when she found uh, Betsy on the floor, um, which Keebler thought was weird, you know, and, you know, it got me wondering whether, you know, because, you know, Larry Maurer had also been seen, you know, on the floor around the same time talking to another man. The other man was never identified. I mean, was this a prank? Uh, I mean, did they know that Hafner was was obsessed with with Betsy and and did it early or, or, or Maurer tell tell him that she was going to be coming down to the, the stacks at around certain time? You know, I don't know. You know, it just getting him to the stacks requires some thought, you know, because he wasn't in an area that had books relating to his field, you know, geology, uh, that those were in a separate library entirely. And so I just wondered, you know, and again, it was because of Early's hysterical reaction that made me wonder whether what she had thought of as a harmless prank had gone horribly wrong. She's kind of an interesting character. I mean, she's yeah. going through her purse after she's... Yes, yes. After she died, I, I found that very telling and she was she was definitely on the police's radar i believe too was she? i mean that was really weird yeah. yeah i mean they they suspected she knew more than she was telling them which is not a good place to be if you're you know merrily early you know and uh you know and they they gave her security actually they had you know troopers escort her to her classes for a time uh and it was just um yeah, unfortunately, she had died before, you know, I could have, I could interview her, but, um, you know, she was a figure of mystery. Let's put it like that. But you mm. think she knew more? I think she knew more. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. But, it, but it, Betsy, to all accounts, really seemed to be the kind of girl who had no enemies, though. It wasn't like she no. had anything and, you know, no drama, no controversy. No, she was a pretty, you know, a straightforward. She was a golden girl. She was like well, the best of her generation. Right. You know? uh, expected to do great things by her friends, you know, and uh, and the, the, the state troopers who uh, went out to Michigan to 
you know, look for dirt on her. Literally, that's what they went out there for. Because if you can find dirt on the victim, you might be led to to the killer. Uh, and they were frustrated because there was not a single damn thing they could find wrong that she had ever done. You know, everybody liked her. Yeah. Right. And all those rumors that did come up about her, you know, taking more pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Those those were all proven untrue. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about just the climate uh, after the murder on Penn State campus, um, how frightening it must have been because this really was a scary time for women, right? I mean, you had Manson, you have Bundy, you have this whole kind of the serial killer happening. Mm-hmm. And then you have this un- unsolved killing at Penn State. So this must have, the 70s and forward must have kind of created this scary, scary time on campus at Penn State. Well, I had, uh, you know, women who were students there at that time tell me that they never went back to the library or if they did, they, they only went there with their boyfriend, you know, and right. got in and out as quickly as possible. You know, and all these rumors started about, you know, the body laying there for days, you know, and that <laughs> sort of thing. And, and uh, I mean, it's, it's just it's a perfect example of how you know, rumors spring up in the absence of, of good information. Right. Right. Uh, but it was definitely it was definitely scary. I mean, even even today, I mean, you, you still hear things uh, about it. Not as much so much, you know, at 50 years on. But uh, but I had no trouble finding you know, uh, former students there who who would talk about, you know, how about the legends, the rumors and that sort of thing. But this is the problem also with an unsolved murder, though. It could be anybody. It could. Right? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that that is what's so frightening about it. And I think Laura's right to Laura's point where you had this atmosphere of you know, you have the Zodiac killer, you have the, you have, uh, I'm sorry, what's his the name? Co- the co-ed Yeah, the John Norman mm-hmm. Collins, who, tell us a little bit about the irony of, you know, of, of that, uh, because he was striking in Michigan at the time Betsy was there. Yeah, he, uh, he killed, murdered six women between 1967 and 1969, but most of them were in 1969. And, uh, he uh, he was a uh, he was a young man, good looking, uh, you know, a former high school football player and everything. Had a motorcycle, and he would uh, he would pick up women, you know, like, like some one of them was hitchhiking, another one he just happened to meet, you know. Uh, however, he could get them to come with him, and then he would fairly brutally, you know. Uh, assault them and, and kill them, uh, and, uh, sometimes mutilate them, uh, and then dump their bodies, you know, uh, in the woods or wherever. Uh, and this was, this was in and about Ann Arbor, Michigan. Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti, right. Yep. And Ypsilanti is, is close to Ann Arbor. Uh, that's where Eastern Michigan University is. Um, and so, you know, Betsy was a student there in, you know, this, her senior year, you know, was the spring of 1969. And, and she was very affected by this. I mean, the, everybody knew that the the killer, whoever it was, targeted pretty brunettes. Right. Three, a pretty brunette. Uh, of course, she was taller than the, the other victims, which, of course, nobody really knew at that time. But because uh, there wasn't that much information available. But 
but she was very worried. In fact, she even talked to uh, you know one of her friends about how she wanted her funeral to go if, if she ended up being a victim. Uh, wow. And her parents were terrified, as were parents of University of Michigan, you know, co-eds across the state, because just about every newspaper in the state ran continuous, you know, wire stories about, you know, the investigation and the various murders and, and that sort of thing. And so there was intense public interest about, about these killings. Uh, and, uh, and it wasn't until the summer of 69 that uh, Collins screwed up and, and was caught. Uh, but um, by that time, see, Betsy had wanted to, um, she had really wanted to join the Peace Corps. In fact, she had been accepted to the Peace Corps to go to Africa, I think to Sierra Leone for a two-year stint. Um, David Wright told her one day, well, you know, if you do that, I might not be here when you get back. Uh, and so she was thrown into this personal quandary. Uh, you know, does she want the Peace Corps more or her boyfriend more? And she went with the boyfriend. Uh, and But even beyond that, her parents and her uncle and aunt were adamant against her staying at the University of Michigan for grad school, which is what her, her intention was. It's a great English grad program. Uh, so she decided to follow David to, uh, to Penn State, which uh, it had a good English graduate school program, not nearly as well known or respected as Michigan's, but it was okay. And, and it had, and allowed late admissions. So she was able to, to get accepted there as a student. So that was how she ended up at Penn State uh, in, in the fall of 1969. So then take us forward a little bit. The, the, the police conduct a fairly massive, um, you know, investigation, but nothing really concrete comes out of that. Right. And it lays, this case lays dormant for then how long until? <clears throat> really until the late 1990s, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when some, uh, what I call citizen investigators, uh, a guy named Sasha Skuchik, who was a, uh, an assistant, or a, I think an assistant professor at Penn State, uh, and a guy named Derek Sherwood began looking into, you know, this case. Um, Actually, I should I should add interject here that there was also a woman by the name of Pamela West, who um, who heard about the, the odd circumstances around this murder as early as like 1976, uh, and and she actually identified Hafner at that time as a suspect, uh, and uh, and this was you know she heard about him going to Professor Wright's house, you know after the murder and that sort of oh, thing. But wait, oh, wait, uh, David, so explain that. because Yeah, I, that's, we want to yeah, talk about yeah, that. Yeah, talk about that okay, a little bit. First, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 I think so. Let's yeah. talk about um, that. At about 6 p.m. on the night of the murder, um, Rick Hafner shows up at the front door of uh, Professor Lauren Wright's house. Wright, no relation to David Wright, was his thesis advisor a very important person you know, in his life. Uh, and, you know, Wright answers the door and Hafner says, is there anything in the papers about that girl being killed in the library? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and there had been, there would be no news coverage until about 11 PM that night when one of the radio stations uh, got something out about it. But, but at that time, the answer was no. And so 
Wright was very disturbed about this. Uh, and because this is only about an hour after she, after Betsy had been. Yes. Yeah. It's about an hour. Yeah. Okay. And, okay. Um, it's a weird question anyway. I mean, it why? yeah, it is. And uh, so he stays about an hour and then he, then he leaves. Uh, and, Wright doesn't say anything. Even in the, the subsequent days when there's there's 40 state troopers on campus and, and it is nothing but investigating this murder being talked about, he doesn't say a word. Do Even we do we know why? Why? Do we know why, <laughs> David? Do you know why he didn't say anything? I suspect he was scared of Hafner for a number of, of, of reasons. Um Possibly, and again, this is speculation on my part, that he was bisexual and was afraid of being exposed. Um, and he had a wife. He got married at 42 for the first time. And um, and his wife, Myrtle, was a, was a very, very nice, gentle you know, person. You know, she played the recorder and she was a Quaker and, and all that. And he, Professor Wright, would spend three to four months of every year out in, in Nevada and California doing his geological research. Uh, and she would stay back in state college. But, and I think he also was physically scared of Hafner, especially later on, uh, 1976, when Hafner came and confronted him in his office about why wasn't he doing more to help him get a, uh, the kind of museum curator job that he felt that he ought to have. And, uh, and Wright was scared to the to the extent that he then, only then, seven years later, went to see his dean Charles Hostler and poured out this story about how Hafner, you know, had come to his house that night uh, of the murder, uh, how he knew that Hafner carried a knife, and that he thought that he may have killed Betsy Ardsma. And uh, Hostler then reported it to the University General Council. And nothing ever happened. Uh, and and part of Hafner's motivation for going to Wright to ask him to sort of uh, um, support him more was that Hafner, yeah. Hafner was had been had he been convicted of child molestation at that point? And well, he had all been convicted. I mean, the trial ended in a mistrial because the jury couldn't uh, reach a verdict. There was one holdout. And, uh, and so the judge declared a mistrial. Hafner then hires uh, Richard Sprague, a prominent you know, Philadelphia defense attorney, you know, a, you know, a real pit bull. And, uh, and Sprague files an appeal saying that there should not be a retrial because what the judge did in declaring a mistrial was too soon, that he should have made the jury go back and deliberate longer. So what it really was was a... a a declared verdict of acquittal. And that was that, you know, and the Supreme Court upheld it. And so Hafner, you know, went free. We uh, couldn't, we couldn't believe that Arlen Specter came up in this case because he, he came up in another one of our cases, Ira Einhorn. Oh, oh Ira Einhorn. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're reading this saying, Oh my goodness, here's Arlen Specter. Again. I think he just po poking his nose into it. But he kind of he briefly appeared on the scene, yeah. right? And then quickly, yeah. Well, Hitler told Roger Cuffey, one of his, his other professors, that that Spectre had helped him uh, 
get you know get out from under some of these other you know pedophile incidents that he had been involved in. Um, Inspector was dead by the time I, I started you know researching this. Um, I could find no evidence one way or the other as to whether he did anything or even was involved at all. You know, so um, that was just an interesting thing that that Hafner said. I mean, it's it could have happened, but whether it did, you know, I don't know. And so Hafner just winds up almost devoting his life to being litigious and suing everyone. Yeah, and- yeah he did. Uh, he had figured out that it was very easy to sue somebody uh, without a lawyer. Uh, all you had to do was fill out the paperwork, pay the filing fee, although he often didn't even have to pay that because he managed to prove to the court that he was uh, you know, too poor to have to pay. And, and then the person he was suing then had to hire a lawyer to defend the case because if he didn't do that, there would be a default judgment. And uh, so it was a great way to ruin somebody's life, to tie them up in nonsense litigation that, that Hafner never won. You know, it was always eventually thrown out, but only after, you know, the the party being sued had to pay, you know, how many thousands of dollars in legal fees, you know. And and the parties being sued were some of his victims, by the way. Right. Yes. Uh, there was the, yeah. the family of, of one of the boys that he was uh, arrested and charged with uh, molesting in 1975. And he tied that family up in litigation for 15 years. Uh, all of it was thrown out. But this was just like a, you know, the sort of Damocles hanging over their head, you know, for all that time. And these judges in Lancaster County just seemed to be blind to what was going on right in front of them. You know, they they treated each of these lawsuits like it was a legitimate, you know, lawsuit. Uh, they didn't seem to notice that he had filed a whole lot of other lawsuits and they've all been thrown out, you know, so. It was just a horrible situation. And he's basically re-victimizing his victims, too. Exactly, yes. Yeah. I mean, he's an example. He just seems to be an example of so many things gone wrong. And I don't want to throw Penn State under under the bus here, but, I mean, they have obviously shown in other examples of, of not addressing situations and big scandals. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and we've we've seen that with Sandusky. And so, I mean, do you think, how do you think Penn State handled this? I mean, what's your assessment of, of how Penn State handle, handled this? And, and, and have they made, did they make changes? Did they address, you know, change their security, um, do, do things differently so this won't happen again? Or? I would say generally no. Uh, they, um, they wanted it to go away. You know, they... Um, I asked Sergeant Kieber straight on, I said, did you get cooperation from Penn State? And he said, to a point. Uh, you would reach a point, and then they would not want to go any further. They did not want anybody connected with the university linked in any way right. to this crime. And uh, and I point out in the book, you know, I think that there, there have to be, you know, drawers full of documents yeah. related to this investigation. Because, you know, I, I've seen in my other research, you know, how institutions generate paperwork, you know, in, in response to events like this. And there should be a whole lot of stuff. But in the archives, there is one thin little folder of mostly press releases. And nobody claims to know where anything else is or went to. And 
it, let me ask you too, from an evidentiary point of view, um, aside from testing for fingerprints or DNA on the uh, on the porn magazine, has there been? I, I was re I think in your book you were saying that there's been a reluctance about testing some of the evidence. Is that is that correct? Um, I was trying to think about that today when I saw you know, your question, and I um. I got the impression that maybe they were going to do some some DNA touch DNA testing, but the Pennsylvania State Police are so opaque that you'll never find out. They'll never tell you you know mm -hmm. how it turned out mm -hmm. unless they would file charges against somebody. You know, and, and as recently as as two thousand eight, they're not going to tell you negative results, right? Yeah, or, or who's excluding? Right. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, I mean, as recently as two thousand eight, they were still looking at Larry Paul Maurer. So. You know, it was, yeah, they, I mean, they, it seemed like they, they view this as a humiliation almost, you know, that, that citizen investigators and, and, and with some help from retired state troopers had developed Hafner as, as a suspect initially. Uh, and, and you, and yourself too, David. Yeah. yeah. You, know, you know, I mean, you're really the heroes. I Keebler, I think it's, you know, these people who just dedicate their lives to these cases are, are amazing. Yeah. And, you know, we, we go through this just, I mean, not in any extent like you, but we're always looking for cases. And I think we want to think of universities as these like great institutes of higher learning, but they're businesses and they don't want you to know about the bad things that happened at them. And, you know, we go looking for cases at these big universities and get shut down all the time. And they particularly don't want to, their missteps to be aired either. Right. You know, of course. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, we have, you know, they don't want it like, and because they're businesses and they're about making money and attracting new yeah. students and right. they don't want us over at Harvard, like taking pictures in front of the dorm where there was, you know, a stabbing. Right. Exactly. And we do that. <laughs> <laughs> and if, so David, in it, what, um, what would you like to see going forward on this case on, on to, to get justice for Betsy Artner? I mean, I would like to see Penn State make all of its documents public, uh, including the documents at their law firm, you know, and uh, just to be for, for transparency, I would like to see the state police, you know, unseal that massive 1700 page file on the investigation that they refuse to let anybody look at, uh, except another state trooper, uh, and, and just see what, see what comes out of it, you know, um, at least to give some kind of closure, you know, to this. I mean, I think, you know, when, when Trooper Barrows told the Arzma family in 2010 that, that Hafen, she thought Hafner was the killer, I mean, that certainly did provide uh, a degree of, of closure, you know, to them. But then when the, the state police then disavowed Trooper Bar Barrows, you know, what were they thinking? I mean, um, yeah. Yeah. unfortunately, most members of, of the family did not want to be interviewed. They would not be interviewed. Mm. Uh, so, and do you know explore that pardon me but to your, to your earlier point you know when before we we do schools i always google like fun facts about the schools and just mm -hmm. little things and and this did come up so it still is coming up and it came up there really was a murder in the stack right it's like part it, of the penn state it's still coming yes you know, like, you know, so it yeah. is still coming up yeah. um as kind of yeah part of the, the myth of penn state yeah. so Perhaps yep. if they did make it all public and, and really put more closure on it, it would clarify some of that. 
mystery. Yeah. But under state law, they don't have to, you know, and so they they're basically exempt from the Open Records Act, except in some very minor categories. Uh, And so, you know, unless somebody would, you know, sue them, you know, and and force them to, to release it. I can't see that ever happening. You know, one one thing I think we have to mention, too, is that um, so Richard uh, Hafner's cousin, Chris, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, What did he tell you? Because I think that's an important circumstantial piece of evidence, but but important anyway. Well, the main thing that he told me was about uh, a conversation he overheard between uh, Rick Hafner and his mother in 1975 after Rick was. was arrested by the Lancaster police, uh, you know, for molesting the two boys. Uh, and Chris was working in the rock shop, which was separated from the house by a, a fairly narrow alley. And, you know, uh, Rick was, was outside doing something and, and his mother, uh, Era Hafner, comes storming out and starts screaming at him because there had been a story in the paper that day about his arrest. And, oh. and she says, why don't you just kill me the way you killed that girl? And, uh, wow. Yeah. And, and Chris remembered that. Uh, and, and there were other conversations he had with Rick, uh, which he interpreted as, you know, Rick trying to spin this away, you know, uh, and, um, but, uh, Chris came to believe that, that Rick had been the, been the killer mm. and that his mother, you know, would have protected him under most circumstances. Mm-hmm. Right. Gotcha. Well, very, very interesting read, David. Compelling, and, yeah. compelling case. Yeah. Yeah. And very, you know, I looking forward to seeing what else comes out of this and hope maybe someday we'll have all the answers on it. You know, that would be, you know, that would be great. Um, thank you so much for, for talking with us and, and, yeah, uh, I'm actually ready to read Epidemic next. Me too. <laughs> Me too. It's really good as well. And that's about Cornell. So yeah, that's, that's right. That's, that's totally true. in our wheelhouse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So that looks like it could be a pretty fascinating, fascinating read. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, we would encourage everyone to, to read that one as well, because yeah. that looks pretty interesting. We, we love historical cases. And we could talk to you for hours, could, yeah, this but case, we have to. <laughs> I have more questions. Yeah, that I could go on and on and on, because this is this is a really fascinating one. Yeah. In your description, your writing, it really, it, it really even brought me back to college, being in the stacks, the smell of the stacks. Uh, and no, it's, it's so special sort of spooky yeah and, and oh yeah you know, i really and i mean i it was very atmospheric to me and and i really i it was very compelling so thank you so much for that yeah thanks again david really appreciate it